It's go time. Welcome everyone to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. Don Charvin along with Heath Graham and from Parts Unknown, the indefatigable Pat Mooney has returned to the show. Listen from the dead. <laughs> Great to have you back, Pat. It's good to be back, guys. Ah, well, we'll have to reminisce some other time. We have to get to business now and we have a CBA to discuss. The uh, CFL and the uh, CFLPA have agreed as of Wednesday night to move forward with a new CBA. The governors have to approve it, which I think won't be a problem. The players have to approve it. Could be a little bit of an issue. We'll get into that later. We do see some significant developments in the CBA that at the beginning of the discussions, we didn't think were even on the horizon, or nor did we countenance. Long-term medical care is a huge one for the players. They've got that increase from three to four years this year, and then in 2023, it's up to five years, which means you retire, you get five years of medical coverage from the CFL, and this really matters to American players because of their healthcare system compared to Canada's. I think this is an outstanding win for the players to be having medical protection for the players who are putting their bodies on line for the game is crucial. And to have it extend to four years and then to five years, I think is something that the players would want to have and, and need to have. This game, you often don't play for very long and you can have catastrophic injuries and you do need that coverage when you're taking that risk with your body. So I think this is great for the, the players. It appears part of the reasoning behind increasing this coverage is also that the coaches can have full pad practices back in the coming season. So obviously with full full impact practices, it does increase some injury risks, but it's great that they have come to a solution that's going to increase that medical coverage for the players. 12 times a season for, I believe it's a term of one hour per session, the teams can now have a fully padded practice. I was musing with Ryan Coop on the previous podcast uh, whether or not that would come early in the season when you're trying to get everybody into game shape or late in the season when maybe a crucial game's on the line and you want to make sure everyone's in tune with what needs to be done. I think it's going to really depend on how the team is playing as well. It might be an equivalent to what you see in hockey with a bag skate if a team isn't performing and working them extra hard. But if your team is on a bit of a roll. I don't know if you want to increase any risk of injury and and have that higher intensity if they're successful and able to kind of walk through things and come up with a substantial game plan. I don't know if it's worth your while. <coughs> I agree, Heath. I think if a team is having troubles, let's say over a period of a week or two where they're struggling to wrap up tackles and, and complete them, that's where you're going to put the the pads on and say okay guys we've got to do this right we can do the walkthroughs we can do things but when we actually get the pads let's go through and and address the issues and and I think coaches will be careful about when they do use that and you're going to look at the schedule as well so there's shorter turnaround weeks where you're not likely to be putting on the pads for practice or the in between those Labor Day and and the week after home and homes we know those are already pretty intense rivalries are you going to want to increase that that risk and that wear and tear on the body by having pads on and and full contact practices in between those two crucial weeks 
Injuries are down roughly 35%. It's going to be interesting to see if we see a spike in injuries as a result of this, or does it uh, stay on that downward trend, which would be really nice. Big portion of this CBA, of course, is money, as any contract negotiation is. The uh, PA got raised to the cap of 100000 per season, minimum. Now, I say minimum in the sense that there's 100000 that the league will put into the cap every year to, to grow it. But there's another piece of the puzzle, and that is revenue sharing that will offer players up to 30% share of revenue. One growth. great point that has come out of this is that the CFLPA will have a seat at the table with CFL Ventures. And that's going to be huge in determining how that money is spent. Having one seat doesn't necessarily give them much sway, but at least their voice can be heard. And they will hear the information directly from CFL Ventures to be able to pass that on to the members of the Players Association. So I think that's one of the hugest wins as far as the revenue goes in this new CBA. We heard Randy Ambrosi talk at length about making this a partnership with the players. And and I think this clause alone does a lot to move that forward. Where the players are at the table, the players have some transparency in terms of what's happening in the league and, and whether the league's prospering. And if the league does prosper, the players stand to benefit by this. So I think it's an outstanding clause. The formula for this is going to be the baseline of 2022. In other words, revenues achieved in 2022 will be the baseline for the calculation as you go forward. The players, as you say, do have a say on the board of CFL Ventures, but they also have the opportunity to have an accountant review the files. In other words, they will have an audit of what goes on. So there are going to be a lot of options available to have transparency in this whole process, which you always want. The owners have agreed to transparency years ago with the salary cap when they were monitoring themselves. Now the players get an opportunity in on this. One thing that I would like to see come from this as well, we've talked a lot and a lot of other fans have about promotion of players and how the league is marketed. So if you have a player representation in that CFL Ventures room, it may push some of the things like we've seen in in college sports with name, image and likeness or how people are, are marketed. And that can only lead to increased revenues as well. So the promotion of the league is something that that is paramount to its success and its growth and having those players directly involved in some of those discussions will be very helpful. I think another key point here is having the Grey Cup factor in as well. So you're taking the revenues from the Grey Cup and you're going to also include that which has not happened in the past. I think that's a good opportunity as well because a strong Grey Cup showing benefits the league but in this case it's also going to benefit players if things go well. I also think this is great to set a standard. I, I believe they've got a set amount of money that each team is going to have. And I don't think that's always happened with all the teams. So this might be a case of having that best practice that some teams do now being in in some ways forced upon all teams in the league to say, okay, you've got this money, make sure you're using it. Make sure you do promote our game. Make sure you do get out in our communities and, and bring people to the game. So I think this is a, a, a good clause. You've got experts in marketing and business development, such as a person who appeared on our podcast, Victor Kui, the president of the Edmonton Elks. That's a great resource because there's a guy who started ventures from the ground up and literally built them into multi-million dollar enterprises. He is a fantastic resource and you've got more than just him. 
around the table. Genius Sports is going to be a massive player on all of this in terms of growth potential and revenue streams. More you can tap into expertise, the better everything goes for everybody. Global players will see their salaries increase to 70000 per season and then cap out at 75000 Baseline for veteran players is also changing. A veteran who's played out at the term of his contract and resigns with that same club can be guaranteed up to 50% of his base salary in the final year, be it a two, a three, or a four-year contract. That is a massive, massive change. Not every veteran is going to get this. This is going to provide that answer that if I buy this number jersey this year, is that player going to be here next year? I think the league and the players are good to agree on this case because... We've spoken at length about how our fans connect to the players and our fans want to see some continuity in the game. And in the past few years, we've seen players switch teams very quickly. You know, we joke about it, but you don't really want to buy that number because you could lose the player within the next contract. If a player now is able to negotiate it, we can keep players on the team that they're with. And we have some visibility for the fans saying, hey, I know this player. He's been here five years. And it benefits in that sense that they're able to negotiate the extra pay as a player that they would then receive the the payout if cut prior to that last year. So it's more likely to have the players stay with the team for a longer period of time. The one thing that I wonder is that will teams be a little bit hesitant because that's now guaranteed money. It used to be more tied into option money and they would cut players in front of the option payment so that that would be off the books. This player is going to be on the books Is there going to be at least initially some hesitancy from teams looking at veteran players and saying, well, if we sign that person and we negotiate up to, say, 50% of his base salary being guaranteed, this is a big risk for us as much as it is for the player. It is. I think the age of the player when it comes into these contract years is going to be a key factor as well. If you've got somebody in that veteran category, but is still kind of in their late 20s to maybe very early 30s. It's not so much of a risk, but if you've got some of those players, you you take somebody like Stanley Bryant, maybe, for example. We know he doesn't have very many seasons left in his CFL career. So even two years ago, how would you want to structure a contract that has some of this guaranteed money with a player of that age? And you're right, it is definitely a, a risk that teams are going to have to really consider before they start negotiating these contracts. To go back, Don, to your point about the global players receiving a raise to the league minimum, I do think that's a great move as well because it puts them on on par with the national players and other players coming into the league so you can compare apples to apples, right? When you're getting, we've talked about this before, a punter at a discount, um, it may not give that national punter, for example, the same opportunity. Now you can actually put the players on the field, compare the players and their performance and really come to a decision based on performance as opposed to the fact that we're saving a little bit of money because this player is being paid less. Things that are very important, but typically don't get a lot of press. Uh, They've agreed on the terms of COVID travel, the return of the NFL window, uh, a housing allowance tied to the national average of rent, uh, mental health and addiction programming, uh, a player and fan code of conduct, administrative language regarding work permits, national certification of equipment and medical personnel who interact with the players. 
not going to be sexy stuff when it comes to stories, but it's very, very important. Player and fan code of conduct. It is important in the sense that it will protect the league and the teams and, and be able to really address some of those problem fans that we, we know generally the very, very high percentage of CFL fans are great. We're, we're passionate, but we're also appreciative of the players and what they do and fans of the other teams that come into our cities to watch games and attend them. But there's always those problem ones that take things too far. We've seen that with interaction with opposing teams, fans, with players, throwing things on the field, dumping beverages on people, all that kind of stuff. So having that in place, although it doesn't necessarily directly affect the play on the field, I think is a huge, huge part and hopefully gets rid of some of those bad apples. Players returning from the NFL will have a different contract situation for them. If you come back after three years of playing in the NFL, you're considered a free agent. And that means you can negotiate freely your contract. That helps a lot of players who actually get the NFL chance. It doesn't work out. I think this is beneficial for the league in the fact that we are going to be competing against other leagues. You have to be able to have players be enticed by your league. And this does that for players who played three years. Now you can come up and negotiate your own contract and you're not stuck on the rookie cap. I think that's going to benefit those players who will consider the CFL. The benefits packages that are being provided in the, in the CBA are a huge inducement. You don't get that in the USFL. I don't know what the XFL plans to do, but I can't imagine that they're going to be offering the same type of medical coverage that the CFL is offering. It's also uh, impactful for the teams in that three years is a long enough window that a lot of things on your team and your philosophies and possibly coaches and personnel have changed. If you're losing a player for one season to the NFL and they come back, they should still be tied to that original team and that original contract. But three years, I think, is a big enough window that it's the right way to go about it. Now, the PA can reopen the CBA after five years once TSN's broadcast deal expires. So essentially, uh, this contract, though it is set for seven, does have a window, a sunset clause built into it that if TSN, maybe another network, and the CFL negotiates a new television deal. That's an important window as well. It does give us that flexibility if there is a lot more money. And we've talked about we don't know exactly what the future of of broadcasting is going to look like, whether it's major networks, some online components and that sort of thing, all fighting for the rights to broadcast. So by reopening that window, it allows the players that chance to look at the revenue. The books are going to be open and see what the deal is and how that's going to impact their salaries. All of the major sports networks in North America have a streaming component. The interesting part is going to come in is when you've got other streaming services wanting in on the party. Exactly. That was that was kind of my point is you've got your network deals for the broadcast over over the airwaves, but does somebody else come in and really throw some extra money in to get those broadcast rights for the streaming services? And if the league thrives and is doing well at five years, I think this window allows the players to say, yeah, we, we want to take a look at it. If if it's not doing as expected, it may be one that we say, okay, let's continue for a couple of years and then we can take a look. But but my my thinking is that 
as you say, the streaming opportunities are going to be there. There's going to be different media at this point in time, and we're going to understand the impact of Genius Sports as well. So this gives them at least uh, a shorter term to say, okay, it is time to renegotiate and take a look at where we stand. Well, the fact that the CFL is open to allowing players to get a piece of the revenue stream pie, as it were, in the betting world, football is king. More money is bet on football than almost all other sports combined. CFL gets a piece of that action. It's going to be huge for their bottom line, and then it's a win-win. The other thing, too, remember, is that revenues that come to the Players Association via these other streams, they don't necessarily have to apply to the cap. They can use it for other avenues for the players. That's the PA and the players deciding how they want to distribute the money. It could tie into player pensions and things like that as well beyond their playing careers. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. The ratio. As it stands right now, prior to this contract, there were 21 Canadians on the active roster. Seven of them were designated as starters. That was up for grabs during this negotiation, and an interesting and very complex solution was found. Seven Canadians are still starting. An eighth will start, but that will be a nationalized American three of the national starting spots can be subbed by designated nationalized Americans. Up to a maximum of 49% of playing time, doesn't say whether it's in a game or in a season, but I'm guessing it's in a game. A nationalized American is three years with a team or five years in the league. The other thing that we don't know is how they're going to apply the 49% rule. Is it per each player per game, or is it all three players totaled in a given game? That's not defined to my knowledge. That is complex. It is certainly complex, and I wonder how they're going to track it, and what is the result if a team exceeds the 49% accidentally with a player what what is a penalty and how how do you take a look at that i do like the idea of this is another way for the league to see american players potentially resign with teams so they can be labeled as that designated national if you will and and so i think you're going to see some continuity of yes we're willing to resign some of these veterans put them in roles uh, but i i do question how do we get into the minutia of tracking this it would make more sense to me if it's over the course of the season as opposed to game to game. As long as it's tracked and that data is available to the teams after each game, they can start to figure out maybe towards the end of the season that guy is only taking 20% of the snaps because you've overused him earlier on in the season. And I, I agree with you, Pat, there needs to be solid penalties in place if teams do go over that and and perhaps it's the the matter of they actually lose that spot and and have to put another canadian in or or something to that effect as well so you don't want to see teams take advantage 
one of the biggest wins is that we have preserved the Canadian starters, the seven Canadian starters and the 21 Canadians on the rosters. There was a lot of speculation as to what that was going to look like in the new CBA. And they have kind of done their best, I believe, in in keeping with that tradition. But also, as you alluded to, keeping some of those veteran U.S. players involved and, and that longevity on a team. And, and that just continues to go beyond and and really helps promote and you said earlier you're not afraid to buy that jersey with that player's name on it because now he's one of these these designated players you know he's going to be around for the longer term it's almost like a reclassification of the designated import and if people aren't familiar with what the di was in the past a player would come in and he could only come in for one player he could not. So typically they were kick returners. Now, I don't know if they're going to use this and designate three Canadians that are starting and saying, you're the guys that are going to rotate. Or are they going to say any of the seven and you can be rotated out? Given that there are only three column DIs available, I imagine you're going to have to know where they're going to go. And receiver running back would be most likely destinations, maybe somebody on defense. It is going to be interesting to see how that is instituted in the game. Like you say, Don, if it's going to be three specific players, if I'm a Canadian player in one of those positions where I'm being subbed in, I'm going to be a little disappointed. This was done, I think, to preserve, in, in what I read somewhere, to preserve the Canadian starters playing time bonuses. But at the same point, how do you develop if you're not on the field playing? So I do know that it's trying to improve the product on the field. We know there are a vast number more American players, starting Canadians that are just moving into starting positions and have to share time with American. It's, I think it'll impede their development a little bit. A case in point, if if you're looking at something like an inside receiver position where you've got it shared between the two, it's going to be a lot tougher for that Canadian to reach the 1,000-yard threshold in receiving in a season if he's only playing 51% of the offensive snaps. How do you calculate it? If it's on a game basis, do you have to have somebody designated on your coaching staff to chart the number of plays that have been played on offense, look at this player and say, oh, they're at 35 trips onto the field and we're only at 69 offensive plays. They're over the threshold. What if you get caught out by that? What do you, is it a forfeiture? What, what happens? Like, what are the sanctions if you fail to administer this properly? My gut feeling is that teams will be much more reticent to even come close to that threshold because of the fear of what could happen next. It hasn't been spelled out, but I'm sure it's going to be devastating. As long as it is devastating, because if it's not, we know there's coaches who are going to push the envelope. We've seen Chris Jones do this in, in previous uh, coaching positions where he's, he's, he's played with that number and, and gone, oh, sorry, and there really hasn't been much of a penalty. I think you do have to have some kind of devastating consequences, you say, Don. The Hamilton Tiger Cats at the end of the last season against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders did the same thing. They had more Americans on the field than they were allowed against Saskatchewan. They got a, their knuckles wrapped. That isn't going to cut it. They're going to take that chance. They need something that has teeth. You made a very valid point, Don, about not necessarily even approaching that 
if you look at something later on in the season, like I said, if it's averaged out over the, the course of the season and you're sitting right at that 49% and all of a sudden that Canadian starter has a season-ending injury, what do you do? You can't put that American in because you're going to go over that over that threshold. It's going to be very tough. And, and when it comes down to an end of the season, if you're in a playoff push, you don't want to be handcuffed by what players you can use and in what situations. That's why I think this is going to be game to game or week to week, as it were. And I really do believe that if you say there are 80 offensive plays in a game, they're going to scheme to make sure that the designated imports will only play max 30. You need that buffer. Because if you if you start flirting with that number, imagine how the Players Association is going to look at this if this starts to become rampant. Coaches are notorious for doing anything they can to, to find that competitive advantage. And so uh, this is going to be interesting to see how the league does do it. I'm looking forward to hearing more details uh, because it is extremely complex in this ratio uh, at this point in time. The other thing that we have to consider is that right now in the stats packages that we get, we do not have enumeration of the players that were on the field for a given play. You have to have a mechanism to do that. Now, in the NFL, the jerseys are chipped. So I imagine if you put an RFID transmitter into the jerseys or the helmets or something, that you could then account for every player that's been on the field throughout the entire game. And maybe this is where Genius Sports comes in. <laughs> They're the ones who have the data and are able to track and provide this. So now with that capability, like you say, if they're able to do that with the jerseys being chipped, they'll have that data and can present that back to the league and the coaches. But that has to be real-time data if you're doing it game by game, right? It's not a case of Edmonton had 80 plays. Oh, and by the way, the DI had 41 of those. You need that real-time so that co coaches can make decisions during the game, not to get into those situations. In a game though, even if you're doing that, so I've got my offensive player that I know now I have to play the Canadian out for this next series and suddenly there's an interception and we're at the end of the game and I've blown my opportunity to get that Canadian out there for time. That's where these things are going to be interesting. That's why I think that most teams won't even flirt <laughs> with the notion of getting close. The impact of this also has rankled some veteran players in the Canadian Football League. Chris Aki, for instance, of the Montreal Alouettes, has come out without telling his team what to do, stating that he's going to vote against the deal because he thinks that this is an erosion of the national starter. I truly think it is, is it not? I mean, you've, you've got seven starters, three of whom can be replaced for up to 49%. It's always interesting the different perspectives from the representatives. Uh, Adam Bighill was very vocal in how hard they fought for what they did get, and and he was pretty pleased with the deal that they managed to get from the CFL. And then you've got Chris Aki, who was another player representative for the Montreal Alouettes, basically coming out and saying, there are some good things, but I don't know if this is good enough. So it's going to be a, a real interesting watch to see how the players do vote as far as ratifying this bargaining agreement. We'll probably never know how the Board of Governors votes in the CFL, if it's a 5, 4, 6, 3, 7, 2, 8, 1, whatever the number is. 
we may have a better sense of how the player vote goes. And here is a question that I have for you two. If the vote goes 55 in favor and 45 against, what does that say to the executive? It says, hold on to your horses next time around because this is not a clear-cut victory. It's also going to be tough for the players that vote against to still feel good about the deal that is there. So it could really create some some division within locker rooms and within teams as to how the players are accepting or not accepting of this deal. When we talk about renegotiating in, in five years would be the soonest point. Often when you let that horse out of the gate, it's hard to pull back. Even if it passes with the 55-45, you're going to have animosity, but I think in a five-year period, you're likely to see that move away because it just becomes the way things are done. I guess you also have to consider what the average length of a CFL career is and how many of those players that were dead set against the CBA are still going to be kicking around the league five years or seven years from now. Good point. Where I'm going with this, I guess, is if you're the executive, you're Ramsey, you're Elamimian, you're Big Hill, and you have hammered out this deal, you send it back to the players recommending ratification, and you only get a tepid positive response. Do you throw up your hands and go, well, what are we doing here? Or do you take solace in the fact that the deal was accepted and we clearly have to address more needs the next time around? It would probably push me towards resigning from the executive if it was that close, to be perfectly honest. I think those guys have gone to bat for the players. They are emotionally and mentally exhausted from these negotiations as well. And now you've got some of these players are retired, but other ones are expected to go back to camp and, and start performing at that high level again. I would have a have a real pros and cons weighing to see if it was worth it for me to have put that much effort in if I've only got just over 50% support from the rest of the players. So the hope would be that however this comes out one way or the other, it's it's a little more resounding than that. Five to seven years down the road, we're going to be looking at what the level of Canadian talent is in the league. And, and maybe that's where you start making those decisions. If there's not the same number of impactful Canadian players, has this fight been worth it? Football as a sport has seen a massive decline in participation. And that hasn't only affected the CFL, that has affected the NFL as well. The draft pool has shrunk. And there's also the factor of competing leagues. We don't know how many startup spring leagues might be in action or still around in five years or seven years. We could see XFL 4.0 by then, uh, uh, some some other set of letters for another football league. It, it's really hard to say. So it's, again, where are you drawing that talent from and how big is that base that you're, you're pulling? Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching.